Facebook, we are live. Hello, live from uh, Vox World Headquarters, Brea, California. Mike and Andy here with uh, potentially another set of uh, unbelievable questions to, to <laughs> wrestle through. Um, we just uh, finished recording our podcast. It comes out Monday. And uh, so uh, part of this, we love just taking, uh, we get we get questions all the time from folks. So how many we got, Andy? Uh, we got four. Yep, four. we got four. Um, you ready? Number yep. one. Yep. Here we go. Here we go. Hi, Mike. Hi. You spoke in a podcast recently about having a faith based on Paul versus having it built on Jesus and the gospel. Can you expound more on this and the implications of each? Anytime someone uses the word expound, I'm in. I expand. I, I expound. I expand. Um, yeah, I, I don't remember what context I was saying it, but uh, it seems to me now, and this is my experience, not everybody, but it seems to me that that when I first heard the message of Jesus, it was through the words of Paul, and uh, through like the Romans Road, right? Uh, the Romans Road is a series of passages f- taken from the Book of Romans, things like you know, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, the, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus, uh, is Lord and believe in your heart, um, then you will be saved. So it's, it's kind of the, the very classic biblical story. It's like the bridge illustration or the four spiritual laws. And if some of you are like, I don't even know what those things are. Okay. Um, but it, it takes, it takes a slice of Paul. And, um, and so the idea is that we're sinful. God is holy. Um, Jesus takes our sin upon himself. We get credit for, for Jesus's obedience so that we now stand righteously before God. This is called justification and double imputation that Jesus, um, takes our sin. We take his righteousness. And and certainly Paul uses, uh, imagery like this. The issue of course, there are a couple of first is that Paul uses other imagery that doesn't get as much press. That's just as powerful. So he uses reconciliation. He uses redemption. He uses adoption. Um, uh, for instance, um, he only uses justification in three of his letters. Um, but sometimes uh, justification is felt like it's the whole story. The second and most important uh, reason why I, I was saying the distinction between the gospel of Paul and the gospel of Jesus is that is that Paul's really clear that when Paul was preaching to, you know, missionary in missionary context in the first century, Paul wasn't preaching Paul. Paul was preaching Christ. And the message of Jesus was a vastly different message. And and I can illustrate that simply by saying the message of Jesus naturally leads us to live differently. And the message of Paul, if it's only reduced down to that little snippet, doesn't. The message of Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, naturally had to do with what if you lived today. Um, The message of Paul was always framed in terms of what if you died today. Uh, the message of Jesus concerned this life and the message of Paul as it was construed concerned the next life. So, so one of the things that I often point out is that we have been handed a faith that was rooted around the Reformation's understanding of Paul. And uh, many of us have gone back and read Jesus through that grid. And we've done great disservice to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus has preached. Whereas the far better project is to start with the Gospels um, to read them over and over and over, to let the Gospels lead you back into the Old Testament, to the text that Jesus was wrestling with, and then go read Paul. And you'll come up with a vastly different Paul if you do it in that order than if you just started with him. Wow. Boom. Okay, next question. 
Can you explain submission slash the love of the love and respect dichotomy described in Ephesians five? I want to follow and obey God, but I have seen many poor examples of men abusing their power and women being disrespected in marriages. What does it mean to submit to a husband? Should love and respect go both ways? Does a man actually have the final say as a single person? Marriage doesn't sound that appealing. (laughs) (laughs) If in the end, my opinion isn't as important as a man's. Shouldn't all disagreements be discussed and both parties compromise at times? I would think having a mentality of submission slash authority would be detrimental to healthy and functioning relationship. That's a mouthful. Man, that is a mouthful. And... It is a beautiful question. Uh, I think we should probably do a whole podcast on that. Um, It's way too much to get into, but just a couple of quick thoughts. Um, Number one, uh, you're talking about Ephesians 5 where it says, Wives, uh, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And what is often not understood um, is the context of Ephesians 5, which, which is Ephesians uh, 5.21, the verse that comes right before 22, where it says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Um, it says, submit yourselves one to another. And, uh, and so in, in Greek, there's actually, the, the, the way the Greek sentence reads, and I'll get more into this uh, if we do a podcast on it, is um, submit one to another, um, as unto the Lord, wives to your husbands. It doesn't even repeat the submit command. It borrows it from the first sentence. In other words, you can't separate linguistically 521, which says submit to each other, and 522, wives to your husbands. Um, those sentences have to fit together. So I've rarely heard men play the, well, let's submit to each other card um, right before that. I've heard them play the, well, you must submit to me. The, uh, the other idea is if, if indeed, and I don't think this is true, but if indeed it teaches that men are to have the final say or to, to be the heads of, the, of their wives, the, the, the passage is so clearly defines what headship means. Headship means head sacrificer, head servant. And, um, and so it says, you know, husbands love your wives as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then talks about how, you know, it's easy to love your own body. Men should love their wives as their own body. I mean, it's, this was radical for its time. The, the, the revolutionary part of Paul wasn't wives submit to your husbands. Everyone in the first century knew they were supposed to do that. The revolutionary part was when Paul was saying, hey, husbands, love your wives and give yourself up for her. That, that was revolutionary. And so I think that passage is gr- grossly mistaught and misunderstood because it doesn't honor 521, which says submit to each other. But I also think even if you think it teaches headship um, and the man is the spiritual head of the house, um, it, it refuses to cash out what spiritual headship means in a manner that's congruent with what's, what's clearly taught by Paul right there. Namely, it, your headship then should look like Jesus's headship in terms of giving up and serving and elevating others to positions of honor and dignity. So I think that those passages are vastly misunderstood. I think it'd be worth doing a whole podcast on it. Yeah. All right. Can God destroy Satan? Yes. If so, why hasn't he? If not, why can't he? <laughs> well, of course he could. He could He could zap me. I mean, of course, Satan's a created being. Um, the reason he doesn't is the reason he didn't zap Hitler and the reason he didn't zap, uh, zap Mussolini and the reason he doesn't zap Mike Erie, that God early on committed himself to a course that opens up the possibility of human participation in the divine project of, of universe governance. 
And as a result of that project, God has opened himself up to the possibility that free creatures may choose agendas that are not congruent with his own, and that as a matter of course, God will allow those decisions to have real ramifications in the world. He will work to restrain evil. He will bring good out of evil. Um, but, um, you know, outside for the flood, which, which is what he did, he totally destroyed the human race and started over. He committed himself to never doing that again. So I believe that we are in a, a, a section of human history where God is allowing wills, other wills to be done on earth than just his own. And he's doing that because of the, the grand nature of his project, to find human persons, to call out of human history, persons and participants who are safe with his power and character to help run the, the universe forever. And so I actually think that um, in this season of human life, um, we are given say, and given say also means that given say has consequences. And so God could stop every rape. He could stop every murder. He could zap everybody who's had a lustful thought and does not because he's committed, he's committed himself to human freedom for the sake of the project he envisioned uh, before the universe began. Mm-hmm. All right. Wow. I will have to submit a question later that is, who is Satan? Right. That's good. Yeah, that's right. We'll go there. That's right. The church lady. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Last question. Can you talk about the canonization and why some books of the Bible are in there and why others like Gospel of Thomas are not in there? Well, that, yeah, that there, it shocks people to know there are like dozens of Gospels, right? We've got four in the, in the canon and and it's not spelled like the, the gun. It's spelled C-A-N-O-N. And um, the canon of the Bible, so we have four Gospels, but you've got Gospels of Mary and Gospels of Barnabas and Gospel of Peter and Gospel of Thomas. Thomas is probably the most famous one. And the big question is, okay, yeah, like remember the Da Vinci Code from like 10 years ago? Oh, yeah, I lived by that for a long time. <laughs> I th- here I thought, I, I thought I was Jesus' son. I really did. Yeah. Um, uh, there, that raised the specter of just a bunch of old European, you know, men um, having political agendas around who you know put the Bible together and how the Bible get put together. Um, so a couple of thoughts. One, the, the Bible was recognized as authoritative way before the big councils recognized its authoritativeness. In fact, one of the tests the big councils used was how the communities were treating, they were called corpuses or corpi of uh, letters. So Paul's letters were given a weight that other letters were not. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were given a weight that the other Gospels were not. In fact, many of those Gospels weren't even written till you know, second century. So they're very, very late as, comp- as compared to the Gospels we have now. The, what, what the standard became um, in determining what got in was, was it written by an apostle? Was it written by someone or, or the disciple of an apostle? So, you know, uh, Peter, um, Peter's uh, writing gets filtered in through what is it, Luke or Mark? I mean, you, you've got, you know, Matthew was an eyewitness and John and John's disciples. And so, so was it written by an eyewitness? Secondly, did the community, did the earliest communities receive these as authoritative? And so the earliest communities, way before the old men got involved, the earliest communities were seeing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as authoritative expressions of what uh, Jesus was like when they would, you know, because they, when, when they were first penned, and again, they weren't put together and edited maybe until decades later, but we have evidence that, that people were writing down notes and telling stories, you know, immediately after Jesus had died and gone into the heavens, um, that there was a check on the, those stories because the, many of those eyewitnesses were still alive, hostile or otherwise. 
And so the, they were formed and shaped um, uh, in, in an oral culture. They got written down. They were received by the church's tradition uh, as tradition that had authority attached to it. A lot of the other Gospels didn't jive with the material in the authentic ones, and they were written too late and by people we did not know. So that's one reason. Now, now if you're really interested on something, go to Tim Mackey, and it's a M-A-C-K-I-E. He, uh, he helps run the Bible Project in, uh, in Portland. He's got a website, and he's got some stuff on how the Bible came together that I think you'd find really, really interesting. Hmm. So that'll answer more, more questions than what I can do in you know three minutes on Facebook. So hope that's helpful. <laughs> cool. Sound good? That's it. That's good. it. Man, great questions as always, you guys. We are so blessed to do this. Check out Vox Podcast um, on uh, SoundCloud or iTunes uh, or Vox Community at voxoc.com. Thanks. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.